Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, tax time means tax scams. The Better Business Bureau has just released a list of the ones you should be aware of. We find out how best to protect yourself this tax season. Could changing your diet add more than a decade to your life? Well, that's what a new study finds, and it's never too late to start a parody. We'll dig into that one with a dietitian. But first, after three weeks of anti-government blockades in Ottawa, police moved in in a big way today, methodically clearing out protesters, making more than a hundred arrests. We'll look at the impact of the past three weeks, the mistakes, the successes, the fallouts, and the lessons to be learned. Just after weeks of anti-government blockades in Ottawa, police moved in in a big way today, as you may have seen. It was everywhere across the news all day long, methodically clearing out protesters. They've made more than 100 arrests. They've seized and towed vehicles. Others have simply driven off. There are still some people there tonight, though Ottawa police not long ago tweeted out a red alert saying that you must cease further unlawful activity, immediately remove your vehicles and or property from the site and leave or you will be, will be arrested. So the warnings continue. Uh, of course, there were a lot of kids there. We knew that. Lots of fuel there. We already knew that. And a portion of the protesters saying they vowed to stay put despite those days of warning from police that they needed to leave. So there's always been a fear that this could have turned pretty ugly pretty fast. But Honestly, looking at it today and having been in many protests over the years, this one has been relatively calm. Here is Interim Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell. We have a plan. We articulated that plan to them, and they have executed it extremely well throughout the day. Uh, the level of professionalism that they're seeing in the face of taunts, uh, slurs towards them is, uh, is challenging, but we're seeing their ongoing professionalism every minute of every day. Let's be honest, no one wants to see police go in in your capital city and start removing families from a protest site. But they've been given days notice and it feels like this had to happen eventually. And as long as no one gets hurt, um, this will probably end the way I think most of us hoped it would end. Let's get some more now from the ground. Outside of Parliament Hill is Global National Correspondent Mike Armstrong. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Pleasure, man. So, so, I mean, I watched this from afar, but how was it there? How did this unfold from from the morning on? It seemed quite methodical until it uh, got a little more heated. Yeah, it's interesting because you sort of sat there the last few days knowing something was coming and waiting for it to happen, uh, wondering when it would happen. It happened at about 8 o'clock this morning. And basically, police approached from the eastern flank. There was sort of an area that is away from uh, the main protest uh, and they, they sort of, it's a thinner area. The, the trucks there were set away from the main group. And so the police approached from there and then would, would move forward foot by foot, taking block by block, and then surrounding trucks. But to get to those trucks, first of all, they had to push people back. So there were physical confrontations. There were a, dozen, a couple of dozen arrests in the early on. When they would get to a truck, they would knock on the window. Once they circled the group of trucks, they would knock on the windows, ask the driver to leave. Uh, if the driver did agree to leave, they would let them drive away. Uh, if the driver did not agree to leave, they would actually break the window and pull the drivers out and then have the vehicles towed. Um, now, they haven't had to move that far throughout the day because as they sort of moved up and, and took over more and more blocks, truckers in the main part of the protest decided it seems to be ending. So they've been leaving sort of on their own from the, the main, the middle of the protest and sort of the western parts of the protest, people have been leaving. So I'm standing in a spot that uh, 
earlier today was three trucks uh, across and uh, end to end, full, full, full. That is no longer the case now. There's two tr there, excuse me, there are two trucks there, one truck, two trucks there, one, one, one. Much, much thinner. A lot of trucks have been leaving. And if you look around, a lot of trucks are still preparing to leave. But as far as sort of been the altercations you're talking about, it's been um, physical at times, quite physical at other times. I know that uh, there was pepper spray later in the sort of uh, late afternoon, and then this evening the police put out a statement saying uh, there were actually, uh, there was a bicycle thrown at a police horse, and the person who threw the bicycle has been arrested. Uh, and they've also put out a statement saying protesters assaulted uh, officers and also attempted to remove officers' weapons. Mike, I, I know for weeks protesters were warned, or told at least, to leave and then warned that action was imminent um, and it never was. It is now. What has been the reaction of people there who thought perhaps this day wasn't going to come? Yeah, boy, the bravado that you heard yesterday from people, I would say every single person we spoke to said, I'm not leaving, I'm not leaving no matter what. And as a matter of fact, there were not many people that left sort of Wednesday, Thursday. There were a handful, two or three that I can think of. Um, but I kept meeting people who were there for the first day. So it felt like there were more people showing up. As a matter of fact, this weekend would have been pretty crazy if it had been a regular weekend, especially since the holiday weekend in Ontario. Uh, so it was, good, it was about to get quite crazy. But the bravado and people promising they wouldn't leave, that sort of broke. It feels like that broke at about probably 10 o'clock this morning when it was clear police were finally moving in and, uh, and really not playing around. Mike, you've seen many protests over the years. I think back to Quebec City many, many years ago. How would you assess this one in terms of the mood, the resilience of the, of the crowd? Um, what was your thoughts about, about who was there, why they were there, and, and just how, like, do you think this is over, in other words, having seen so many of these? Yeah, it does feel like it's, it's very much winding down. I mean, uh, the people that are still here, for the most part, if you look into the crowd, I think there, are, there is a group that still doesn't want to leave. But even some of the protest leaders have been saying it's time to go. Uh, and, and because the penalties for staying are so severe at this point, uh, bank accounts being frozen, vehicles being seized, things like that. Um, but boy, if you compare it to other protests, I, I would be lying if I said it, it was as violent as some of those other protests I've covered. For example, the Summit of the Americas, I guess that was 2001, so a heck of a long time ago. Uh, but there was a lot of restraints here, if I can put it that way. Uh, the police really, uh, early on, especially the first few hours, they seemed to almost be arresting people who wanted to be arrested, like people were throwing themselves at the front of the line. Uh, other than that, uh, they were really just pushing people back, pushing people back, but not being, uh, not, not being as forceful as they could have been. I mean, I didn't see any tear gas. That was certainly there. Police had a ton of it ready to go. They didn't use it. So obviously there was a plan in place and it was executed in the way that it was expected, I guess, because everyone's hope was that this would end uh, without violence or at least without much. And it seems to have at least for the time being succeeded. Yeah, there's a lot of criticism out there. If you hop on Twitter, uh, people saying that uh, it's a terrible, it's a, sh it's, a, it's a shame for Canada. It's, uh, but I'll tell you, uh, there are other people who have hopped on and said this is pretty exemplary police work and an example of something that could have been much, much more ugly than it's turned out to be. 
Um, is that your sense as well? I mean, this it is odd to think of there being that many police officers crowded around Parliament Hill. It's a place I don't know if listeners have all been there, but it's not a very big area. And I understand just by looking at it that there was a lot of police. Was it, was it jarring to see that kind of security presence uh, in the area? In a way, no, because the the big police presence, or, or at least the, the contact between police and protesters happened sort of at the eastern extremity. So uh, the bulk of the trucks that are sort of at Parliament Hill and in the, the close couple of blocks uh, and then south of there, police didn't really have to go there. Uh, and the, so the confrontations have been further over to the east, uh, probably about four blocks, I don't know, 600 meters, if I can put it that way. Um, but the trucks that are moving, that are in the sort of main protest area, they're moving voluntarily. Right. Was it hard to get in? I understand there were blockades or at least checkpoints all over the place to be able to get into the area even where you're standing. Yeah, I woke up a little early this morning and thought, I might as well leave the hotel early since I'm awake anyway. I was very thankful that I did because <laughs> I had to end up going uh, a few kilometers to the east just to get on the highway. And then all the highway exits were closed, which meant I had to go a couple of kilometers past downtown to the west just to get off and come back along uh, side streets because all basically uh, police with a hundred checkpoints that they told us about uh, yesterday have shut down the area about 2.2 kilometers square kilometers in downtown Ottawa but when they put those checkpoints on and they cut off that area to protesters um, they also put checkpoints in the neighborhoods surrounding that so really the inconvenience for people in the city there are many more people being inconvenienced today than the other days because it's stretched out so much to prevent protesters from getting into this downtown core. Because what police wanted to do was basically make sure that the, the numbers that were here didn't get bigger and also cut off supply lines because there are these uh, protester camps. There's one in, uh, out by a baseball stadium. There's one across the water in Gatineau. There are a couple in a town about 30 kilometers to the east of here as well. And that's where a lot of the diesel's been coming from and things like that. And we did see uh, people trying to bring fuel in today to get into the truckers being turned around at checkpoints. So that was a big part of the day. The last question for you, Mike. I know it's cold there, too. Uh, there was a storm yesterday, so I gather there's a lot of snow and, and it's not warm. Um, what happens now? How much longer? Are, what are police saying about, about next steps? Well, they're saying they're going to go 24 hours. They're going to go 24 hours uh, like around the clock so that this operation will continue. As I've been speaking to you, I've moved down to the uh, War Memorial, and it looks like not much different here. Fewer trucks, a couple of trucks have left, absolutely, and a few trucks that uh, uh, look like they're preparing to move as well. But uh, And a little bit of honking way off in the distance, so still a little bit to the east of here, interestingly enough. So police are going to be out all night long. That's certainly what they said. The last numbers that we've heard, uh, because they've been keeping sort of a running tally going, uh, police issued a statement on Twitter that said they've had more than 100 arrests and also uh, 21 vehicles towed so far. That number might go up overnight. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Stay warm, stay safe. Always a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. I don't know about you, but until I changed my phone number recently, I was getting a lot of those scam Canada Review Agency phone calls saying I faced imminent arrest for something or other, some even in Mandarin.
Um, those ones are really easy to spot, but a lot of them aren't. And this time of year, apparently tax time, of course, is prime time for scammers. Joining me now is Simone Lee. She's president and CEO of the Better Business Bureau serving mainland BC. Thanks so much for being here tonight. No, not a problem. I, I, honestly, why? I guess it, it goes without saying it's a dangerous time of year for scams, but why is that? Well, I mean, when it's tax season and you get a, a message from the CRA, you're paying more attention to it. And at that in itself will add a level of legitimacy to something that maybe generally you wouldn't pay attention to because it's just the wrong time of the year. Makes sense. Uh, their tactics, though, I gather, are, although we're familiar with a lot of them, the tactics, though, you, you mentioned are always evolving. What are some of the new things we're seeing? Well, for example, that phone call you were talking about, uh, they can be quite persistent. So you don't just get one or two calls. You might get as much as five calls and your call display might look like it's coming from Ottawa. So that in itself is going to add a little bit of legitimacy. And if, if you talk to someone, they have a badge number. Uh, so it, it does sound legitimate. Um, you know, the emails that they send out where it looks like you're being told that there's a refund waiting for you. Um, in the old days, you might see things like typos in those emails. Not anymore. Now they really look legitimate. So it takes you some time to really look at what you're reading and make sure that it's legitimate. Now, of course, if it's an email and it's telling you to click something and, and provide some sort of personal information, it's a scam. Don't respond. Yeah, I guess it's all you just need to make. They can send you a thousand of these. You just have to be caught off guard once, right? Exactly. Then that's exactly it. I mean, it's a pretty cheap way of marketing if you think about it. Um, and for them, this is their business. They're trying to catch you. They're trying to catch you unaware. And they want you to provide them either with information or in those other situations, they want you to send the money. Um, so if you can just listen to your gut instinct or breathe and do some research first, that's going to go a long way into protecting you. Uh, you mentioned that online, of course, I do my taxes online. Now I think we, a lot of us do, uh, but online is fertile ground as well for some of these scams. Yeah. And I mean, the good news about doing things online is that when you are filing using the CRA system, um, you can sign up for email alerts. And so that can tell you if someone has initiated something you don't know about, um, you set up a PIN. So when you're talking to the CRA and you call them using the legitimate phone number, you can be assured that um, they're confirming your identity with them. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that when you get these emails, you have to start thinking, okay, is this from the CRA? Because they, they will reach out to you that way, but they're never going to ask you for information that way. And that's what's key. Yeah, I guess uh, another thing you mentioned I found really interesting because I didn't know about this was tax identity theft. Yeah. And so that's where people have your information. So somehow you've given them your, you know, your social insurance number. And now what they're doing is they're taking that information and either filing a false return um, with their contact information so that they get the benefit funds or they're applying for other benefits that you don't even know about. Um, and that's in your name. And, and those kind of things can be very messy to clean up. Yeah, no kidding. Um, now that we know what the scams are, you've also in your on your webpage and in this article that was uh, produced this week, you do have a lot of tips on how to avoid being caught out. What are some of the prime ones, Simone? Well, I would start off by remembering yourself, you know, just 
a reminder that the CRA is not going to initiate with you uh, through email, uh, through text, um, you know, in some of these scams through social media. So they're not going to contact you and ask you for your personal or financial information. They're not going to ask you to pay by Bitcoin or pay by credit card. They're not going to come to your door. Those are all signs that someone's trying to use coercion or really scare you into doing something you're not going to be, you know, you don't need to do. Um, beyond that, I would suggest that you always make sure to, if you can, file your taxes as early as possible. Um, that's good because it's going to reduce the opportunity for someone else to file a, a fake return on your behalf. Um, and when you are thinking of filing your taxes and you decide you might want to get some help, make sure you use a good company. Make sure you've done uh, your research and, and you're using a company that's credible, that you've checked out. Look at the BBB.org, for example, and found out what their credentials are to, to provide the service that they're going to be doing for you. I know that you mentioned this. I always have trouble because you only file your taxes once a year. So you, you, yeah. you often forget that pin for your CRA account, right? But you highly recommend do not use a pin that you will remember easily because you make yourself vulnerable. Exactly. I mean, here's the thing. If you start using one pin for all your banking needs and then, you know, you accidentally give it out to one scam artist. Now, not only do you have to clean up that account, you have to clean up everything else as well. So try as much as possible to use unique passwords. You know, don't use, uh, don't use, uh, you know, pets and, and things that are easily identified by your, your social media accounts. Um, because if someone is following you or watching you, um, it makes it easier for them to guess. And so you want to use something that's complicated. And, and with the CRA, you want to, you know, you want to use a very unique pin. One thing I found really interesting, Simone, is I started getting these calls in Mandarin a while back. Um, and I realized that it's not just English speaking folks, of course, that in Canada, because, you know, we live in a diverse country, that a lot of people, a lot of these calls are also targeting people who speak different languages. And what's the best way to watch out for that? Maybe educate people, um, educate people who are getting these calls in different languages as well. Well, and then that tells you something as well. I mean, really, they are targeting people who um, maybe aren't as familiar with um, Canada laws and traditions. And so being able to target certain key audiences where it might be more common to get that kind of communication somewhere for those people who don't know where to turn, um, especially to determine if something's legitimate or not. So if you are getting a call like that, um, and you know it's a scam, just do us a favor and report it. I would report it to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. It's, it's their role to collect this information and work with law enforcement to shut these agencies down. I'd also ask you to report it to us. We have a great tool called the Scam Tracker Tool. It's right off of our website. And you can go there at any time and see where scams are, almost like a bit of a weather report. So you can read other people's narratives of what they're seeing out in the marketplace. And that can be a really good prevention tool. Yeah, just to remind the audience what the website is. I have it just about in front of me, but I, I will let you share what the website is because I just lost uh, it. I apologize. No, that's all right. Our website is bbb.org. So that's bbb.org. And please come and visit us and we'd be happy to help you. And I guess really to, to boil it down, if you feel like you're being pressured or you feel like being coerced, my experience with the Canada Revenue Agency, they don't need to coerce you. If you get a note from the Canada Revenue Agency, you can pretty much be, you'll probably have to respond no matter what. So that really is, it's the hard sell, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the CRA is really there 
Uh, if they do have questions, they're going to give you the time to investigate um, and do the research. So if you do get a call uh, from the CRA, then what I would say is take their information, don't give them any information, and then using the trusted number found on their website, um, reach out, confirm that it's legitimate, and at that point, you can provide them the information they need. Simone Lees, uh, President and CEO of the Better Business Bureau serving mainland British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Have a great long weekend. You too. We talk a lot these days about prevention being the best cure. Actually, that's a very old saying. We just, I seem to hear about it a lot these days. Uh, but a holistic approach to health is a popular topic, we well know. And the most obvious way to perhaps help achieve that is by watching what you eat. You are what you eat, another old saying. A new study, though, shows that healthy eating can add years to your life, as many as 13, according to this study. And while the younger you are, the more you benefit, just like investing, it is never too late to start. Joining me now is sports and family dietitian Emily Mardell. Thanks so much for being here on a Friday night. It's great to be here. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I've been thinking about this a lot today because there's so much to talk about. When these studies come out, they always seem to sort of state the obvious. You know, um, if you replace a typical diet of red meat and processed foods with more good stuff, then you'll live longer. But this is something that uh, that I guess people need telling now and then. I think it's always nice to kind of get a reminder. I'm, I mean, we want to be cautious with you know, one study, particularly when it is kind of based on, you know, reported data and, you know, um, kind of questionnaires and things of that nature. But when it comes to um, a diet that really or, a, you know, a, a screen that really looks at uh, life expectancy, there's a lot of research very similar that supports, you know, when we have a diet that's more rooted in that kind of plant based or plant forward um, approach to eating, whether that's through, you know, legumes or whole grains, nuts, seeds, um, less processed foods, like you mentioned, uh, uh, these are things that are uh, a great predictor of longevity. Um, what are some of the ways, I mean, I, I know it's sometimes difficult for people to change their eating habits. Um, you're used to eating a certain way. You're used to th having certain things on your plate every night. Um, if, if you sort of are the standard, you know, meat, vegetable and starch person, what do you find the best way to try to break that habit is, or at least to try put more of the good stuff in and maybe take a little bit of the bad stuff? Well, I think if we, um, I think that what you kind of mentioned actually kind of um, suggests some balance, you know, and balanced meals are one of the things that really perpetuates health because the more balance, the more variety, the more seasonality we can have kind of in our meals. So I like the idea of having a protein, a, you know, a starch or a grain and, you know, at least half the plate with some vegetables and fruits and things that are seasonal and accessible. But at the end of the day, when we look at behavior change, it is difficult. Um, we are not like, um, you know, the car in my driveway, right? Where you, when you're empty, you just fill up and, you know, kind of repeat the process. Food is a, a complex relationship and one that is rooted in, um, you know, a, a lot more than just, you know, calories in, calories out and, and being good regulators. So I think when we look primarily at behavior change, I think a good place to start is, um, just recognizing that there is not one path to healthy eating. There's not one way. Um, I think, you know, when diet culture and fad diets and other things kind of tend to swallow us whole a little bit, we, we actually miss, um, miss an opportunity to, to, to craft and to kind of create an eating pattern that is personal and sustainable to us. So um, in my practice and in, uh, in my experience, uh, people that kind of do the work and, and take the time in making small steps towards changes that are most sustainable to them is ultimately where they see the best um, health and nutrition outcomes. Yeah, I mean, because 
you know, ever since I was, I, was, I remember, I think the first time I heard the word diet, my grandmother mentioned it. And I think it was, I, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of those very old, this goes back a, a long time. I'm 50, 51. Um, but thinking about just how that's, that has never gone, it just, they just changed names, it seems. So what are some of the ones you're seeing these days? And, 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 um, you know, do they, I guess the obvious question is, do they work in what measure? Mm-hmm. So uh, a diet in the sense of you're your meaning kind of in terms of um, what people are kind of leaning towards in terms of eating or what's kind of on trend. Just, Is that kind of what you're, you're just meaning? exactly sort of whatever the, you know, the, what I, I'm thinking back to like, uh, you know, I'm, the Scarsdale diet was one I remember from when I was a kid. And that goes <laughs> yeah, back yeah. a very, very long time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can hear the 80s music in my ears. Uh, but, you yeah. know, sort of there's always, I guess, keto is a new one. That's a big one. Um, yeah, intermittent fasting is pretty hot right now, too, as well. Right. And I think, you know, um, and, you know, high protein is, is here, to, here to stay in some regard as well. Um, and I think, more than anything, it goes back to when we look at meta analysis of a lot of these um, different quote unquote diets that are often uh, rooted in weight loss as their primary outcome, they're not really looking at health outcomes. I think that's something that's really important. A lot of, uh, you know, studies kind of around the ketogenic diet are not necessarily, uh, you know, evaluating cardiovascular health beyond 12 months, you know, when you're eating 80% fat. So that's kind of one of the things that's important to note. Um, But when we compare them, honestly, uh, what people uh, stick to and what they can be consistent with, uh, at the end of the day, um, we see very similar patterns of weight loss. Um, Some might be faster than others, some might be more sustainable. But from a like a longevity standpoint, and it really kind of is rooted in the study that we kind of led with, truly that Mediterranean pattern of eating really is one of, you know, the top two diets where we see, you know, healthier weights, healthier lifestyles, um, healthier relationships with food and body and community. So it really is the one that, um, you know, as a dietitian in my practice, I really do try to um, help people integrate towards a Mediterranean diet where it is uh, most applicable and to kind of make it make sense for where they are. Uh, unfortunately, we're not in Sardinia. <laughs> we're not in Sicily, yeah, you know, gonna, we're not in, say. I know, you know, Ben, it's so bad, but we're not in the Mediterranean, which would be amazing. No. Um, but that's the thing, you know, um, it may not be olive oil that's at our, you know, disposal in terms of, um, you know, cost effectiveness or availability, it might be canola oil, it might not be an abundance of fresh fish, it might be more plant based, you know, legumes that are prairie grown, or what have you, you're closer to the coast. So I'm in landlocked Alberta, so I don't get a a ton of fresh fish, right. So you can kind of see how we can be um, kind of close, but kind of far apart and still eating Mediterranean, but eating a little bit differently. So uh, we had to be adaptable and kind of uh, eat where we are. I remember back when thinking, you know, anyone who espouses the Mediterranean diet whole hog has never had a tomato, tomato in Edmonton in February, but, uh, <laughs> although tomato, tomatoes are much better now, I find they, they're not as nearly as styrofoamy as they were back when they seem to be, uh, be tastier. What is sort of a good way to start? Cause that's always a good question. Mediterranean diet. If, if you're in, you know, Sicily or, you know, the Greek mm-hmm. islands is great. It's fantastic. It's a little bit tougher here. How do you recommend people sort of transition into it quietly if they don't practice much of it now? Well, I think there's a couple ways to kind of look at it because when you think about the Mediterranean diet, it is more of a lifestyle, right? So it, um, much like when we evaluate blue zones of the world in terms of um, areas of the world that have, you know, people who live the longest and have that, you know, the healthiest kind of uh, life, it goes beyond what is on the plate. You know, we're looking at kind of like, 
um, everything from a circle of friends to, you know, their purpose-driven life to, um, you know, movement and, and how cities are kind of built around people versus, you know, cars and transit and other things. There's uh, daily rituals to mitigate stress. There's a lot of things that really impact longevity and health. But from a, like a dietary standpoint, um, yes, uh, as my, even the name dietitian is kind of irritating even to me as a dietitian, okay. <laughs> um, because I don't like the word. But when you think about what it is you're eating and going Mediterranean, it is very much finding ways as to how you can incorporate more plants into your diet. So whether that is through whole grains, nuts, seeds, beans, peas, lentils, chickpeas, that sort of thing. And, you know, whatever greenhouse veggies or seasonal veggies are at your disposal. Um, those would be the things that would be most Mediterranean in terms of the what. Now, sometimes the thing that I, the thing that I'm most passionate about actually centers more around the how of eating, right? So it's being connected to the food on your plate. It's uh, understanding where it's it's come from it's being able to prepare food just having the base of food skills right to be able mm -hmm. to you know take a raw ingredients and and kind of transform it into something um you know delicious you know if that's a yeah. that's a skill and something that is really a part of uh, nutritional health um being attuned to your hunger and fullness like just knowing when to stop you know or knowing mm -hmm. when to start um those are things that i think are, are really important it's it's thinking about the what and then again, the how. I guess I mean learning to cook, right? Learning to cook. I know it's mm, tough, but but so learning huge. to cook is probably the best way to find your because it, you're right. Some of the stuff like legumes, some legumes, lentils, for instance. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I've had a bag of lentils in my in my uh, in my cupboard for years, you know, um, because you don't know what and to everyone do. Everyone I mean, bought them at the start of the pandemic too, right? Because that's true. they're that's one true. of the most shelf stable. Suddenly, we realized how awesome flour was again, and how amazing and shelf stable you know, all our dried pulses were so we stockpiled. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my, my wife just texted me to say that I should be, is that mean I'm throwing out the cookies in the, in the cupboard? And the answer, the answer <laughs> to funny. that, the answer to that is, is no. Um, we're going to take funny. a quick break. When we come back, I just had some questions about you uh, for you, because we were talking about what we should ask you tonight. And a lot of questions came up about, about sort of COVID and, and being at home and changing your meal habits and eating mm. a lot, being around the fridge all the time, not having that same sort of set schedule that a lot of us had prior to that. And mm -hmm. uh, we'll get back with more. What should I call you other than dietitian? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't know, but my, uh, my blog is Get Joyful. So I'm like a food joyist, if there's such a thing. I a really believe joyist. that. I like that. If, you know, when, you, when you keep the joy in food, uh, nutrition follows. So that's kind right. of my, my mantra. I will be back with food joyist Emily Mardell right after the break. I'm back with food joyist, joyist. I'm not going to say that right, Emily. I'm sorry, Emily Mardell, sports and family dietitian is how we originally uh, introduced you, but I like food joyist. That's a good a good term. Oh, okay. uh, we we've been talking about um, a study that came out that showed that eating a more Mediterranean style diet would would put years on your life. Um, just one study. There are many out there that say similar stuff. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about COVID because I think a lot of us have. You know, I think in, myself included, a lot of us put on some weight at the beginning of COVID because we were kind of trapped inside and all our routines, our walking, uh, our our meal habits had all changed. Um, now that we're sort of coming out the other side of this, at least we hope, um, what are some of the things you recommend for people to be able to sort of get back on track from from maybe some bad habits developed over the past few years? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the things that um, I've been reflecting on just over the past little while, too, like, uh, I could definitely empathize, like being at home, I have three small children, uh, two, five, and nine. 
So um, my biggest thing was having them all here and them literally hungry all the time. So an example of what we went through is literally I was making like 20 something snacks a day or they were eating, you know, it was just a constant thing. So we actually had to like, kind of like enact like a family snack plan. And every week we would kind of sit down and, you know, plan some snacks for the week and, and get a bit of a system going. It, um, stopped me from having to be the food police and in the kitchen all the time. And it actually kind of um, sent some predictability and, and routine for them. So I think things don't have to be these major shifts, right? We can kind of, we have these spidey senses, you know, around like what is kind of creating some, some issues or disconnect with our food or um, where we feel we're, we're lacking success. Some of it um, can be um, like I said, you know, managing kids snacks and and having to keep your sanity and your uh, food costs in order. Um, It could also be, um, I just got my kids to bed. Right. And it's the end of a busy week. And I just want to sit on my couch. And, you know, when I when I do that, those kind of environmental cues around, you know, what's what's for snack time for me right now? You know, how am I going yeah. to decompress? And frankly, talking to you is is doing that for me. It is giving me that kind of joy, that kind of outlet. It's giving me that kind of decompression. And I think finding ways kind of beyond food, I, I think when we were stressed so much in the pandemic and ongoing still, um, we recognize how comforting food can be, right? And how without, you know, coping mechanisms and other things in our wheelhouse to kind of deal with these stresses, uh, when we rely solely on food, or we don't have um, certain food systems or skills in place or uh, approaches to eating in place, things can go downhill fast in, in the sense of us just kind of feeling like food is more in control of us than we are in control of it. So I think one of the best ways to kind of get on track with things is just thinking about something that you can do that you can attach to a cue um, or something that you're already doing um, and, and build from there. So um, a simple example, like, I never forget to brush my teeth before I go to bed. So I keep my chewable multivitamins up there in my toothbrush drawer. I never forget to take my vitamins because I've connected it to that. Um, I have a few clients this week that are, um, for the first time in a long time, commuting and driving to work, right? Right. So they've started a little bit of a make-ahead breakfast routine where, you know, we have a little bit of a plan for them to do some smoothies, some overnight oats, different things like that. And their commute is now turned into you know, a healthy breakfast opportunity, right? Whereas they have to drive, they have to be there. So let's be prepared for it and use it. So I would look at what's shifting, what's changing, or what's staying the same, what is consistent in your day right now, and what you can attach to it, so that you can make a healthy habit or a healthy behavior, something that you can do, you know, five days a week or more. Because there's certainly been some healthy habits picked up during the pandemic. I know that people tend to eat better in the morning, for instance, because you're not rushing out the door as one used to, uh, you know, grabbing whatever you could or not grabbing anything at all. I've noticed people eating better breakfast, for instance, and maybe that's something we try, as you mentioned, something we try to hang on to. Yeah, I think that is a really good point. It's it's about kind of reflecting on, we all kind of dropped the ball, like dropped a few balls and picked a few up, you know, and I think you have to kind of look broadly over things because um, you have to celebrate the small wins in order to keep uh, motivated with any kind of health change. You know, I think we can be very hypercritical or very focused on, you know, one outcome measure, whether it is weight or whatever it might be. But looking at um, a cascade of behaviors and looking at really 
how can I be healthier? How can I have more healthy behaviors in my day to day is really um, the the best lens and the best approach to take first. So uh, I'm a I'm a breakfast fan partially partially because I'm like I'm like hangry in the morning. So <laughs> I'm like no one has to convince me to eat breakfast. But um, I meet a lot of people that just simply are not. And and kind of like you said at the beginning, it has a lot to do with how you were. Um, raised or you know what I mean like kind of some of the role modeling and things like that so um, you know it just kind of depends what you can always learn new habits you can always coach yourself into um, you know an eating pattern that helps you better meet your needs for sure I'm a firm believer in that food joyist Emily Mardell thanks so much for being with us glad we could provide some therapy to you too so you weren't reaching for the cookies or whatever it is you reach for in the evening for me it's cookies I don't know why it's it's cookies it's been a long it's a child I, I, like. I write a lot of uh, prescriptions for uh, chocolate bars and cookies because I think <laughs> uh, challenging the food police is is one of the best things we can do because when we can eat something and kind of move on that sets us up for the success the next day. So I, um, I wouldn't throw at your cookies just yet. I think you can manage them just, just right. I'm glad to hear it. Emily Mardell, have a great weekend. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye.